Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. My principal aim is, in tonight's talk, though, is to talk about St. Thomas's sacramental theology and present it in a, in a bare nutshell. I mean, obviously, we don't have enough time to, uh, to develop uh, the print, all of the principles and then the specific things he has to say about each sacrament. But then beyond that, I would like to try to use some of those, uh, some of those bare principles to look at a few literary works and see how St. Thomas's teaching helps us to understand a little bit more about what's going on in the literary work and maybe see the ways in which he, his theology helps us not simply to understand a little bit more of the context, but might even complicate things in the way that we look at a particular event in uh, a literary plot. So first of all, we have to situate ourselves in terms of St. Thomas's theological teaching regarding the sacraments. And so I just wanted to show you, I don't know if you can read this, the light, the, uh, the chalk wasn't quite as, as uh, good as I thought it would be, but um, the, uh, St. Thomas's theology of the sacraments can be found in two of his principal works. First is an earlier work called The Commentary on the Sentences. Uh, sentences are a, a work by Peter Lombard, uh, written in the, the century previous to St. Thomas in the 12th century. And um, it was used as a theological handbook from the, uh, really a textbook from that time until uh, in some cases, even up until the 16th century. Um, the Summa Theologiae is uh, a later work of St. Thomas and is not a commentary on another work, but is a work of his own in which he proposes to uh, provide a textbook for beginners, uh, a kind of textbook that will, um, that will reorder and reorient some of the questions of, about uh, theology in a way that will be more comprehensive and, and clearer than previous textbooks. Um, in the Summa Theologiae, we find in questions 60 to 90 of the third part, the, the Summa is divided into three parts. Um, it is an unfinished work, which is important to understand. The, um, the questions in the third part have to deal, first of all, with the life of Christ. So in the first part, he's dealt with, with 
um, the theology of the Trinity, the theology of creation, and then in the uh, prima, the first part of the second part, he's dealt with general moral principles having to do with uh, human nature and with humans make decisions. And then in the uh, secunda secunde, the second part of the second part, he deals more specifically with uh, uh, vices and virtues, uh, an explication of the moral life. And um, then in the third part, he proposes not only to talk about the life of Christ, but also how that life of Christ then sanctifies and so that's why he introduces the sacraments here. These are the means of sanctification. And so uh, questions 1 to 59, he goes through the entire life of Christ in a kind of summary fashion, um, detailing the, the, the principles that arise from uh, the incarnation, for example, from his passion and his death. And then in questions 60 to 90, he uh, begins to explicate a little bit more about the sacraments. This is his, his principal treatise on the sacraments. He begins with uh, a whole section on the sacraments in general, questions 60 to 65, where he defines a sacrament. He talks about their necessity, their effects, and uh, their causes, and their number and then proceeds to go through a commentary on each of the seven sacraments. He, unfortunately, for us, he finished, he, he, he did not finish this work. He ended midway in the section on penance. So he had just finished the, the general reflection on penance in general and was just getting into the specifics of penance when uh, he had an amazing vision he had, uh, in 1274, prior to departing for the Council of Lyon, he had uh, an incredible vision, which we hear of from Reginald of Caperno, who was his, what the Dominicans called socius, kind of like a personal secretary. Um, Reginald had been with him for a number of years, and, and um, he confided to Reginald that he could no longer write because in this mystical vision, we, we don't have any idea what it might be, but um, he said that, that what he had seen was so glorious, so great, that it seemed as though all that he had written was mere straw. So he was unable to, to continue from that moment on. And so um, his, uh, principally Reginald Perperno, uh, helped to draw together a supplementum, a supplement, which was meant to complete the planned um, third part, which would extend beyond the sacraments and then go into the four last things, death, judgment, hell, and heaven. This is mainly taken from this, uh, the treatise in the supplementum is mainly taken from his commentary on the sentences, and laid out in a form that they thought might have uh, accorded with St. Thomas's wishes. 
How much St. Thomas had sketched out the last part of the Summa, we don't know. And, uh, but he finishes in the middle, midst of penance, and then from that point on, what we get is basically his commentary in the sentences again in questions 1 to 99. So that gives you an idea of where all of this comes from in terms of works, if you're at least, uh, if your interest is piqued and you, you want to take a look at some of these things, you know that I'm sure you're all aware that the, the Summa is in an English translation found on the New Advent website, which is uh, just newadventoneword.org. And you can find a whole English translation there. But what exactly does St. Thomas say about the sacraments? He gives us, uh, first of all, an examination of what exactly is a sacrament. And in this, he's, he's not terribly novel. He doesn't come up with a, a, an incredibly brand new definition. Rather, he draws on people like uh, Peter Lombard and, um, and other previous scholars to say that a sacrament is a sign. Um, okay, well, does that mean it's just a symbol? No, because he talks about it as an efficacious sign. A sacrament is an efficacious sign instituted by Christ that confers grace. So an efficacious sign instituted by Christ that gives grace. One of the contributions of St. Thomas is in talking about the sacraments as efficacious. What does it mean to, for a sign to be efficacious? It means that it, it actually acts. There's, there's something in it that acts. It, it produces an effect. How does a sign affect something? And who? what is the... The, the cause of this grace, what can give grace? St. Thomas investigates that question, a question which was a bit of a thorny problem. Because if we say that the sacraments give grace, if they are signs that give grace, where is this grace coming from? How could it not come only directly from God? The... Um, the scholars previous to uh, St. Thomas um, struggled with this, this question. People like uh, William of Auxerre in uh, the early 13th century, uh, Alexander of Hales, who died in the middle of the 13th century, and William of Auvergne were um, struggling to try to talk about how this thing, which is a sign, can confer grace. Isn't God the only source of grace? How can we preserve God's, the soul, God as the sole cause of grace if we're talking about signs? Um, St. Thomas uh, developed uh, and really uh, helped to, to uh, develop this tradition by talking about these as instrumental signs. 
instruments. They talk about them as instrumental efficacious causes. One of the hallmarks of St. Thomas's theology is to talk about God not only as affecting things directly, but making use of uh, various instrumental causes, which helps to carry on his work. He is the prime motivator, and the end work is still his, but co in collaboration with instrumental causes. So this is the, the sacraments, you would say, are efficacious signs. They're instrumental efficacious causes that give grace. How is this so different from what others were saying? Well, some were saying that the sacraments were merely dispositive. That is, that they were kind of extrinsic causes of this grace. This really relies on a kind of legal notion that they uh, that the, 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 that God had ordained these sacraments to affect grace merely by the the performance of that uh, particular ritual action that he had made a compact, a covenant with his people to give the grace signified by this sign when this, this rite had been performed. So the, the rite merely disposed someone to receive the graces that, that God had. So you can see the, the, the difference here. In this conception, it's God directly giving the grace. It's not necessarily that that grace is affected within the sacrament. So this is what we would call an extrinsic understanding of sacramental efficacy. But rather, St. Thomas would say, no, it's intrinsic. That the sacrament acts as a kind of instrumental, efficacious cause with God as the, the prime mover. Uh, and in using those sacraments to affect grace in the soul, which is the ultimate end of all of the sacraments, that to use this, this sign was a principal way in which, which uh, God affected that grace within the soul, that, that, that we actually do receive this grace from the sign. So um, this is probably seen most clearly in the sacrament of the Eucharist. The Catholic understanding of the sacrament of the Eucharist is uh, that it is not merely a representation of uh, of the Last Supper, which reminds us extrinsically of Christ's redemption, his death and resurrection. But rather, it is an efficacious sign. Uh, it is a real presence of Christ coming to us and conferring grace in those who 
come forward to receive it. So this is, a, uh, this is probably one of the most important kind of points in understanding how St. Thomas would, would have thought of the sacraments. Efficacious signs, uh, efficacious instrumental signs instituted by Christ that confer grace. And so he would follow some of uh, his predecessors in talking about the elements of these signs. What are some of these elements? He used some fancy Latin terminology, res tantum, res et sacramentum, and sacramentum tantum. So those of you who are classics majors will know exactly what these mean, but uh, sacramentum can mean a mystery, of course, something that is uh, sacramentum would refer the classical world to a, a, a rite or a, a kind of secret rite that might be used or a secret sign, a sacramentum. Uh, in this case, what St. Thomas meant by sacramentum tantum only the sign, he meant here the outward signs themselves. So, for example, in the, the, um, in the, the sacrament of baptism, the outward signs are the pouring of water and the invocation of, by the priest of the, of the Blessed Trinity, the words that he uses. So just the, the formula and the, uh, the water, the element that's used. Res et sacramentum is literally the thing and the sacrament, the thing and the sacrament. Res is just a, a thing. But the principal thing of any sacrament, and that's what he means by res tantum, is grace. This is the main thing that's conferred by any sacrament. And so, Talking about res tantum, it's the grace that is conferred in the sacrament. Res et sacramentum is the right by which this, this, these outward signs are enabled to confer grace. So those are the, the kind of basic elements there. Uh, so in in baptism, we have the, the grace of justification and redemption that happens in baptism, which would be the, the rest hunting, the effect. What happens in baptism? That's the effect. The rite, well, we all know it, the pouring of, of water, invocation of the words, the actual ritual itself happening right here and now. The elements, water, the formula of baptism. These are the things. Bear signs, you might say. So, are the sacraments necessary? St. <laughs> Thomas says, yes, they are, as a matter of fact, necessary because they are necessary for us. They are necessary for us because we are bodily creatures. The human person... Uh, the human person is uh, an, an integral union of body and soul. 
For St. Thomas, he would say that the soul is the form of the body. It, the body is, is the matter, and you have the soul as the form of the body. These things cannot be divorced without losing that kind of human nature that we talk about. You can ask me questions about that later as far as the separation of body and soul. I, for the time being, it's enough to know that uh, for St. Thomas, the, the body and uh, the union of body and soul is necessary for the human person. That, that's what a human person is. Um, and if you want to look at some of the uh, Aquinas 101 videos that deal with this question, there you'll find expositors who are much more capable than I to talk about last judgment uh, and, uh, and proximate judgment. However, getting back to St. Thomas, um, he says that they are, are necessary for the sanctification of the human person because we are bodily creatures, and it's precisely through the five senses that we receive insight, knowledge about the world. And because of that, it was fitting. Now, he's not going to try to climb into the mind of God and uh, understand these things as uh, uh, something that he can demonstrate uh, conclusively just through ratiocination. He's going to say that, that these things are fitting for us. From God's perspective, God could have saved us any way, any way he desired. But he says the sacraments are necessary for us, necessarily fitting for us because of our bodily nature, because we take in things by the senses and are able to come to a, an, an intelligence about our world through those senses. And then uh, we are able to, to further use our, um, our intellect to come to even further truths. For example, the truths of, of physics by examining the natural world and then taking some time to think about it, to, to reason through problems and come to further minute truths that help us to understand the world we're in. Um, so the sacraments are necessary for us. Does that mean that they're necessary for God? Um, well, I've just told you really the answer to that question. God could save us any way that he wanted to. But God can still save us, save um, outside of the sacraments. But that would be rather presumptive of us just to simply assume that God is going to extraordinarily use some extraordinary means when he's established these means uh, for us in Christ and in Christ's message to us. Okay. He also goes into a couple of other things which we need to understand about the sacramental chart. The minister of each of the sacraments, who administers the sacraments, and, and how is that even possible? Again, he talks about the instrumentality of Christ. The, the instrumentality of Christ's ministers. 
First of all, by pointing out that Christ in his very incarnation, in his uh, very uh, real body, that Christ's body, human body, is a kind of instrument for the divine nature. Um, this is not to reduce Christ's incarnation to uh, the Godhead wearing a, a human-like costume, as though uh, God were merely using human nature as a kind of puppet, but rather to talk about um, grace can only come from God. Christ's life confers grace by um, in and through a human his human nature, and that's by using that human nature instrumentally. Um, so in the union of that human and, and divine, those human, human and divine natures, Christ uh, makes these efficacious signs, he, he institutes them and helps to make them efficacious. His ministers, in turn, are instrumental causes. You might think of um, something like um, a water pipe. The water flowing through the pipe has its own cause, and the pipe is, in a sense, a kind of instrumental cause of that water coming to us. And in this sense, the, the minister of each of the sacraments is uh, an, an instrument of sacramental grace. Uh, they are, uh, in a sense, extensions of God's activity in the world. Um, so, for example, the minister of baptism can be anybody. Anybody who intends to do as the church does in baptism and uh, proclaims the, uh, the correct baptismal formula and pours water upon the head of the uh, of the person being baptized and intends to do what the church does. Why, why is this? It's because it's such an important and vital sacrament. It is the gateway to all the other sacraments, and we know that all the other sacraments are necessary. So uh, that's why it's so important that people have every opportunity to be baptized. Um, there have been uh, Jewish nurses in hospitals who have, according to the wishes of the mother of a, of a child that is uh, born with, uh, with only you know, moments to live, uh, Jewish nurses who have baptized um, uh, Christian children uh, and conducted an emergency baptism in effect. However, we have other uh, sacraments like the sacrament of the Eucharist in which the minister is, is only a priest, and, uh, and, and so forth. We, we can go through the, the different sacraments and talk about the different ministers, as St. Thomas does, but that would take us too far afield right now. Um, the recipient of the sacraments, who is a proper recipient for each of the sacraments? Again, you have to have somebody who's properly disposed um, the, in the sacrament of baptism, for example, um, which can be given to anyone, 
obviously, but is that person going to be disposed to receive the graces, those graces of justification and the grace of, um, of redemption? Uh, are they going to be able to receive and, and uh, continue to uh, flourish in those graces? Um, there has to be some sort of reasonable expectation that, that uh, the person, be it an infant or somebody who's, uh, who comes as an adult convert to the faith, is going to be able to flourish, to, to uh, receive, not only receive the grace, but also live in the grace. Um, for some sacraments, like the sacrament of the Eucharist, there's, there are conditions for the, the reception of, uh, of these, these graces. Is it that, the, that the, the sacrament is useless, that it doesn't confer grace? No, but we can also refuse the grace, refuse to receive the grace because we are not properly disposed. Hence, uh, the, church's, uh, the church asks of us that we receive the blessed sacrament insofar as we're able to know, in a, a state of grace, that uh, those who, um, who sin grievously are not well disposed to receive that grace. And as St. Paul says in one of his letters, that uh, you should watch out lest you receive the sign, not as a sign of salvation, but as a sign of condemnation. He's talking about uncharity within the community uh, that he's addressing and talking about how that uncharity is a direct contradiction to the sacramental sign of the Eucharist. Okay, um, we need to move on to some literary reflections on these, on these principles. Um, being a medievalist, I'm going to start off with Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Um, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is found in one manuscript. It's in the British Library. It's in uh, one of the, the uh, cotton manuscripts. It is, uh, it's, uh, how many of you have read Sir Gowan and the Green Knight? One, two, two, okay. Uh, how many of you have heard of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight? No more, okay. I'll briefly digest the, the story for you. Sir Gowan is at King Arthur's court and on the feast of the, uh, the, in the, the end of the Christmas octave, which at that time was the feast of the circumcision of Christ, the, uh, uh, the, the feast uh, that King Arthur is having in his, his noble hall is interrupted by a bizarre green knight who crashes the party spectacularly, riding his horse into the hall. And he dares the noble knights there gathered to confront him in a game. He proposes the terms of the game is that uh, he would allow the knight who so chooses to uh, use his own axe and uh, take a chance at cutting off his head. And then uh, a year from then, the reverse would happen. That knight would have to submit to the green knight 
who would cut off the head of the, of the knight if they, of course, this all depends on whether or not the green knight survives the first, the initial encounter. Sir Gowan volunteers. He uses the, the green knight's large axe and which slices the head off quite cleanly and it falls to the ground. No sooner had they, um, had they seen this than suddenly the body of the Green Knight gets up, picks up the head, uh, leaps back onto the horse, and the head says, I'll see you in a year's time. <laughs> okay. So Gowan then has to be remain faithful to his word and to find the meeting place, which is called the Green Chapel. And uh, he's, that's all he's given. He has to meet the Green Knight at the Green Chapel, and uh, the reverse of the contest has to happen there. Uh, to cut a very long story short, he winds up finding the, uh, a, a, a castle in the countryside where his host tells him, oh, no problem, I know exactly where that is. He's, he's been searching all year long, and he winds up in this castle around Christmas time. And so his host tells him, no, no problem at all. I'll show you where that is. And in the meantime, as Sir Gowan uh, retires to his, uh, his sumptuous guest room, his host's wife comes into the room over a series of, of three, three nights and attempts to seduce him in a very medieval and, and courtly way, of course, very stylized. And, and uh, Sir Gowan, very kindly, politely, without trying, he, he doesn't want to offend her. He also definitely does not want to offend his host and wants to remain chaste. He, he finds a very diplomatic way of, of putting her off. The last night that she comes to him, she offers him a, um, a piece of cloth that will uh, protect him, a garter that will protect him. And uh, if he ties it around himself, uh, this will protect him from all harm. And so, you know, this is, this is the key. This is the, it's the way he can avoid uh, a very messy incident, very messy death. He's more than happy to take this, this uh, garment, even though it betrays the terms of the game. That's very important. Because the following morning, he gets up, in quite a good mood actually, runs off to the chapel where he confesses in preparation for all this. He still doesn't know if this thing is going to work after all. He wants to make sure that he's ready to meet death. But he, he makes his confession to the priest. Um, then, and here I'm, I'm quoting from the, the, uh, the poem itself. Um, then immediately to the chapel, he chooses the way. And he privately approached a priest and, and asked him there if he would uh, listen to his life and teach him better how his soul should be saved when he, uh, when 
he should say it when he, after he should make his confession. There he shrived him cleanly and illuminated his misdeeds. The priest, that is, did that. Um, of the more and of the less. And he, the priest, beseeches mercy. And he uh, calls down absolution on the man. And he absolved him surely and set him so clean as though a doomsday should have been appointed the following morning. So he's, he's ready. In the eyes of the poet, Sir Gowan has made this, this great confession. He's absolutely clean. He's, you know, he's, there are no sins left there. What about the game? What about the game? He's, he's setting up to cheat at this game, to wear this, this you know, magic uh, uh, garment around him and to, uh, to deceive the, the green knight. Well, one of, the, one of the main acts of penance is uh, not only an authentic contrition, but one of the most important elements is in what we call an integral confession, that someone confesses all of their sins as far as they know them, as far as they're aware, and this is a condition for receiving the grace of absolution. This is something that St. Thomas would have known well because it was established at the Fourth Lateran Council that in order to be forgiven, one could not just simply go around to and parcel out one's sins to different priests or only tell half of the story. If they were aware of a sin, they should confess it. And this seemingly belies that principle. This situation, he hasn't admitted this particular sin. And he goes out and wearing this, this garment, he goes out. And so he is knowingly going to cheat at this game. So uh, he's, you, and you can't confess for a sin that you're going to, that you're going to commit, right? You can't, you can't be absolved of a sin that you're going to commit. So he goes forth and comes to the green chapel. And there the green knight first uh, faints a couple of times. I mean, by a faint, I mean, he, he, not that he was, you know, falling over, but he, uh, he makes a movement as to cut off his head. And, and Sir Gowan flinches the first time, and then the second time he, he, uh, uh, he's, he's patient there, but he's still very frightened. Then the third time, the, the green knight nicks his neck, takes a small slice of, of flesh off his neck. And then he proceeds to announce that he is his host. He is the Lord who was at the castle and his wife, he had trained to come in and to, to seduce and test him in this way and to see whether or not he would take the, uh, the, uh, the, the garment, the magical garment and cheat at the game. Well, 
is this a real confession or not? St. Thomas would say yes and no. It would, it is, and, and um, it would be if something like this happened. Sir Gowan merely forgets to mention the, uh, the magical garment because it is, after all, just a game and would not have been uh, grave matter in the sense that, uh, in the sense that we might think of, of uh, those kinds of sins that might draw us away from union with Christ. And so perhaps he has merely left it out of his confession not thinking that it was important. Uh, that's one solution. Other literary critics would like to say, it doesn't matter. It's just a, a, a medieval romance. They wouldn't have really considered these things. But the author of our poem has written clearly three other quite religious poems which are in which he shows himself very much aware of sacramental principles. So uh, I find that somewhat unconvincing. But you can see the problem. And if we take it that this is not perhaps uppermost in Gowan's mind, then we can see the, the interesting uh, conundrum that the rest of the poem presents to us. Because when Gowan goes home, suddenly he has this uh, tremendous remorse. He's been shamed. His nightly uh, word has has been exposed as uh, he's been exposed as a as a cheater. Uh, he hasn't been true to uh, his his nightly uh, courtesy, his courtesy. Um, he laments about this so much that he he wears the quote unquote magic girdle, which is really nothing more than a piece of cloth, around himself to remind him uh, himself of his shame. In this, we might see that the whole knightly courtesy and, and courtly order is far more strict and less merciful than God's mercy, than uh, God's uh, extension of mercy through the sacrament. Um, I'll just mention, I had a couple of other uh, literary works I wanted to mention, uh, more recent works. Um, I think what I'd like to, to look at is um, uh, a novel by Graham Greene. I don't realize this is an extreme sort of uh, move from a medieval work to uh, the, just the last century. But after all, uh, there's a whole lot of reformation in between uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and these 20th century authors uh, who started feeling a little bit more confident about uh, writing in the, in, the, in the 20th century, writing about their faith. Um, in Green Green's Monsignor Quixote, he reimagines the, the whole Don Quixote story, uh, the kind of romantic knight errant living in a, in a later century who uh, is kind of anachronistically pretending to be a, uh, a knight from the great medieval romances. 
And he reimagines him in the present day as a, uh, a lowly parish priest who uh, uh, serves up a, a dinner to an important, uh, an important bishop and unknowingly uh, serves up this, this dinner that the bishop happens to like and the bishop later just happens to make him a monsignor. And so he, uh, he winds up going on a, on a, uh, a kind of tour through, uh, through Spain along with his companion, who is the communist mayor of his town. The communist mayor's name is Sancho Panza, who is supposed to be a direct descendant of the same Sancho Panza that accompanied Don Quixote. There are a lot of misadventures, and this is one of, I think, uh, Graham Greene's funniest novels. It's a, it's a late novel as well. And um, the, the good Monsignor has had a number of different uh, adventures, and in the end, he is, uh, he is suffering from, um, from dementia. He's, he's had an injury, and he's suffering from dementia from this, and he's in a, quite a bad way. They, they've, uh, the uh, communist mayor has brought him to a monastery, and it's there that that he's being tended to, but he gets up in the middle of the night and he walks to the chapel and he goes to that chapel and, and starts celebrating um, the, the mass, the, not, the, not the contemporary mass, but the, the old mass, uh, the Tridentine rite. And the, Sancho Panza can't, can't figure out what he's supposed to do. And so he, he decides that it'd be more dangerous to try to wake him from this than to prevent him from doing it. So he actually starts serving this mass. Um, and it's, uh, it's all imaginary. There, he's, not, he, he's just wearing his, his street clothes and he's, he's going through all the motions of the mass. And then comes the moment of Holy Communion. And there's, Sancho Panza, the communist mayor, devoutly kneeling down to receive the non-existent sacrament, which uh, Monsignor Quixote is about to give to him. And then at that moment, we hear the, the kind of inner thoughts of Sancho Panza, and that when the old man's thumb touched his tongue, he could swear that there was a wafer there. He could swear that he had received this sacrament. Is this a real sacrament? Is this, well, most of us would probably say no. But maybe there's something more going on there spiritually. We might lack the sign. But perhaps in the mind of the communist mayor who believes this to be truly miraculous, there's some grace going on there. And maybe, just maybe, he is receiving that grace even though the element might not be there. Maybe he's receiving a kind of spiritual communion 
in this. Those are just two examples. I had a couple of other examples from, uh, Graham Greene is very good for these sorts of uh, complicating uh, notions of, of sacramental action. Um, I would suggest his heart of the matter or the power and the glory as other examples of where he makes use of the sacraments, you know, specifically the, the notion that the sacraments operate ex opere operato, another sacramental principle, that the righteousness or lack thereof of the minister does not affect the validity of the sacrament insofar as the minister is uh, willing to do what the church does. That is, that if you were to receive uh, uh, absolution or maybe holy communion from a priest who is um, a drunkard, a womanizer, um, someone of, of dubious moral life, that his moral life doesn't affect the efficacy of the sacrament. Uh, this is especially a point in uh, The Power and the Glory, whose main character is a whiskey priest in Mexico um, during the last century uh, when Catholicism was outlawed in Mexico. Um, the heart of the matter is, is even more uh, complex, and I'll, I'll just recommend that to you as, as good reading. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not something to read if you're having a really bad day, okay? Um, it's quite dark, as a matter of fact. But um, Brideshead revisited the final scene, the very uh, important final scene of Lord Brideshead at the last moment making a sign of his repentance, his contrition, by tracing, doing nothing more than tracing the sign of the cross on his body, thus showing that he is disposed to receive the final sacraments. So there you have it, some, some general ideas about the sacraments and um, different, a, a couple of different literary moments uh, in, uh, regarding the sacraments, that these principles can help us to help to, to shed some light on, and in some cases actually make the, um, the 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 literary work perhaps even a little bit more complex. They can complexify and actually amplify questions that we might have regarding these particular works. They don't necessarily solve all problems. So. Um, that's pretty much everything that I had to present to you tonight. And uh, if, uh, if you're willing, I'd be, I'd be happy to answer a few questions if, uh, if you have any. Yes, in the back. I have uh, two questions. Um, first, could you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, like, sort of like playing the instrument versus the puppet um, comparison you made with regards to like how God works through like ministers? And then the second one is, um, uh, the, the part about like the, the minister doesn't need to like have faith or like that makes sense, but um, or like in order for the sacrament to work. Ooh. Uh, and also like sort of um, does the like uh, sort of specific thing, but uh, does, the, does the priest need to be in a state of grace too? Uh, like, 
to to confect the sacrament, yeah, for example. So or, assume they're in the process of the yeah. Okay. Well, the first question again, remind me you were talking about um, like like the difference between um, the sort of instrumental or like type analogy versus like how it's not like a puppet action. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. When I talk about instrumental causes and when we're talking about human beings, like a minister being an instrumental cause, or we talk about the humanity of Christ as an instrumental cause. Uh, when we're talking about human beings, that's obviously going to be very different from talking about uh, something inanimate like a pipe. Um, it's, uh, you're, you're talking about something that actually participates to a certain degree uh, in the ministry of Christ. That participation does depend on the, um, the intentionality of the minister. So as long as one of the reasons why I'm talking about ex opere operato from the work having been done, the grace is received, the, the work itself having been done, grace is received. One of the reasons why I said the minister has to at least have the intention of doing what the church does. Okay. Even if he's, you know, even if we've, uh, we have a priest who has lost his, uh, lost his faith, he can at least intend to do what the church does in celebrating Mass. And as long as he has that bare assertion in mind, then this works. The sacrament, you know, the sacrament is effective. He is. But if he does not intend to do that, if he thinks this is all a bunch of mumbo jumbo, I'm not doing anything here. And I'm certainly not going to do something that the church teaches. Then we're in pretty, you know, turbid waters there. <laughs> you know, um, so uh, the principle is though that, that the, the priest's moral life does not affect the it does not affect the, um, the validity of the sacrament. The sacraments, though, are more than just bare validity, right? We know that from, uh, if you've been to a mass where you just felt really particularly moved by the way in which the minister, the priest, was able to, to celebrate the mass, that, that his, his faith seemed to be Evident, and that faith seemed directed to to uh, making clear the uh, the real presence in the blessed sacrament. And you know that 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 was just a, an amazing experience. There is a, a kind of um, I want to compare it to a kind of rhetorical efficacy of that, that they, there is a, there's an intensification of the efficacy just by, by virtue of the priest doing what he does well. And St. Thomas would say that that would be better just in terms of, of uh, a kind of intensification of the experience for those who are attending that Mass. 
and in so doing, they they are are able to, um, in a certain sense, understood in a certain sense, able to to um, uh, magnify the effect, as it were. But that person is still, even if the, the priest is a dirty, rotten scoundrel, uh, and, but as long as he intends to do what the church does and, and hold it in saying the mass, the, those people who receive the sacrament have still received the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. You know, they can have, there can be a kind of moral uh, uh, multiplier there for if, if the priest does it well. So, um, the other question was, like, if, if like communion, for example, if I understand it right, having to consume the Eucharist during the process sort of requires the union to take place, right? Uh, or not, sort of like that. For him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So one of these, the texts that I mentioned, the heart of the matter involves uh, somebody who um, is in an adulterous relationship who uh, his wife drags him off to, to Mass, partly because if it's Mass, they should be going, but also partly because she wants to see whether or not he's having an illicit affair. Because she's convinced if he were having an illicit affair, he would he would not present himself for Holy Communion. Right? So it's a test. And it's kind of, it's not a great thing to be doing with the sacraments, okay? But, um, so he goes, and even though he knows himself not to be in a state of grace, he receives Holy Communion. Okay, this is, um, he's, he's not well disposed to receive the sacrament. The sacrament is not going to have its, its ordained effect in him, and it becomes a kind of contra, a sign of contradiction for him. As St. Paul was talking to the, the community that had difficulty with you know, manifesting charity, that if, you, if you're unwilling to manifest charity, then uh, this will become a sign of contradiction for you, right? So, uh, yeah, so, uh, any other questions? Uh, in the case of the adulterated if he intends to sin again, but he's gone to confession before him. What would his moral ground be? And like, is he in a state of grace? Like, if he intends he to sin again, feels like admonished for the sin, but still he's going to again. Then where does he stand? Okay, so your best friend comes to you and says, says, you know, I'm I'm really really sorry I took that fifty bucks from your wallet, but you know. If I didn't do all over again, I think I'd do it. What's your response? So it's like the idea of the grace of Jesus about integral confession. So it would not be integral confession. Even if he feels like truly remorseful. Like do you, do you still have the intent to do it again, does that make you not integral at that point? If, no, if you if you have the intention not to do it again, it means that you do not have, have true contrition. Right? Um, there's uh, there's uh, 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 there's uh, contrition uh, which is partial and complete contrition. Um, 
we might call it uh, perfect contrition and imperfect contrition. Right. So, um, imperfect contrition, which is is uh, you know you don't have uh, you you aren't uh, maybe uh, maybe you're not really the only reason you're sorry for your sin is because you're afraid of of punishment. Uh, you're and um, instead of uh, being uh, having the uh, what we call um, uh, 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 a kind of um, oh, what's it called uh, not fraternal um, uh, uh, it's the the kind of fear that you're going to offend someone that you love. All right, if, if you think of the act of contrition, we uh, say. Uh, I am sorry for my sins uh, because not only not just because I fear or dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but because I love you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. Filial fear—that's what I meant to say. Filial fear is the kind of of motive. That's the motivator for perfect contrition. All right. So a person with imperfect contrition can still be absolved in the in the sacrament of confession. You know, their sins are dealt with there. Um, the, uh, so what I would say is this is, this is a case of, of no contrition. <laughs> because if you're really contrite, it means that you are saying to the person that you're apologizing to that you're not going to do this again. And that's, that's part of the conditions of sorrow for, for a misdeed. So, the, the intention part is interesting because it's it's hard to like think about when you need to press it as more true. Yeah, I mean, uh, take somebody who is struggling with um, a habitual sin. Okay, maybe somebody's uh, um, suffering from uh, compulsive gambling, right? Okay, uh, there are a number of elements to this, but. Um, First of all, it's a, it's a habitual thing. So because it's habitual, it is less voluntary, right? So that in itself modifies the, the culpability. Um, maybe the person, when they first started gambling and gambled you know, to excess the first time, then they could be held as really culpable. But now, you know, several years later, they're, they're so immersed in this habitual activity, they find it very difficult to prize themselves away from it. When this person goes to confession, they um, still receive the grace, and, and they confess to this sin, and they sincerely say that they, you know, in their act of contrition, um, I will try not to sin again. They're, they're being sincere. They desire that. And that, that is enough for, a, for imperfect contrition. Um, they realize that they're weak, but they're actually asking God for it. In, the, in that case, it's, it is, um, it's a good thing for them to make that confession and that they will receive not only, and in confession we receive not only it's not like uh, 
God takes the eraser and just sort of wipes off the board here, and now you're, you've got a clean slate. Now, uh, no, it's it, God places within the soul the very seeds of the graces and virtues that they've asked for. And so that's that's part of the grace of that suffering. But yeah, so they, um, that the intention in a certain sense uh, makes quite a bit of difference here. I'm mean, just like in my own life and in my own heart, like being introduced because I'm in the profession taking it seriously and being like, I am genuinely sorry for this and I'm confessing it, but I still am pretty likely to do whatever it is. Like, yeah, but we don't know. We don't know the future, you know. But then I, I struggle with, and this is like, I guess, specific to my life, but I think it's more in general, like, then do you receive the Eucharist or not? Because in a lot of cases, I don't go to confession and be like, I still, like, not that it's connected to feelings, but it's like a lot of things, like, to really be absolved, um, it has to be a full, genuine confession. And I have the intent to not do it again. And so I kind of like blame myself whether I'm actually doing that. And I, I usually err on the side of receiving the Eucharist because I don't fully understand why it's not. But for a long time, I, I was like, always oh, separate from the Eucharist. You're under the result. Yeah, you're, so it's like a weird thing that I, I sort of misunderstand like the acronym for which is why I'm doing this. Yeah, you're, you're doing the right thing by going to by going to receive. Um, we can intend to do, you know, St. Paul, I intend to do, you know, the good that I intend to do, I do not do. And um, it's, it's the same with, when you come to confession, the, the very fact that you're coming there, first of all, says that you're, it should say that you're contrite. I mean, it, for, if anybody is coming to confession these days, it's, it's people who are generally seeking what they've done is wrong, and they want to be free of it. They've come to confession for the right reasons. And um, whether or not they're going to be successful afterwards, and by the way, it, in many of these sorts of cases, it means basically surrendering to the grace of God. Um, that's, uh, that's another thing. But as long as you intend you know, what you're saying, I, you know, I intend this. Um, you can't speak for what might happen, you know, later on. But you're, you're at least intending to, to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about what you said, where, like, the author of Strange Stanley and then, like, Green Knight have written other religious stories. So would it be, like, safe to assume that Medieval literature in general, like the authors, had like this kind of understanding of the sacraments, or this that like, particular case of like the well. I'd I'd say I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't kind of overgeneralize. Uh, there are some pretty outlandish things that happen in some of the uh, courtly French romances that are a little sketch when it comes to uh, theological reasoning. So uh, Marie de France. You know some of her her uh, lays and things like that. There are uh, there is a little kind of strange kind of magical like magic thinking going on there. Um, but for Gowan and the Green Knight, I would say this, uh, the Pearl Poet. Uh, I would say he's there's something very serious theologically going on here. Um, the the principal other poem is the Pearl. Uh, which is 
a poem about, it's an elegy, a man um, loses his daughter in infancy, and he's lamenting uh, this loss, this incredible loss. Uh, and he allegorizes her as a pearl that he's lost in an arbor, and he's the arbor is the, the cemetery. He's lamenting over her in the cemetery, and he falls asleep. He has this dream vision of a, a marvelous, uh, heavenly, heavenly-like, heaven-like place where the geography is made of gemstones, and uh, you know, and he he encounters his. Um, he starts walking along, he sees a river, and he starts walking along the bank of the river, and down around a bend, he sees this, this lovely young woman dressed completely in pearls. And he realizes this is his pearl, uh, who he's lost. And he begins talking to her, tell, you know, telling her about his, his great lamenting and how happy he is that, to be there to talk with her. She confronts him with these mistaken ideas of clinging to her because she's in heaven now and she's part of the 144,000 who follow the Lamb. And, um, and so she uh, conducts this, this kind of uh, Socratic almost dialogue with him, uh, consoling him and telling him where he, need, he really needs to place his, uh, his heart. <coughs> In the end, she goes back to the heavenly city to join, rejoin the procession of the Lamb. And she said, tells him that he can just go around the corner here and he's not allowed to cross the river. Uh, it's not his time yet. He can just go around the corner, he'll be able to see the heavenly city. And so he does that, he goes around, sees the heavenly city, sees the Lamb of God, Christ. Uh, and he's just so enchanted, taken up with it, he dives into the river. He wakes up. There he is in the cemetery again. But now he's consoled. He knows where his daughter is. And he also knows where his true desire is to be in heaven, to, to stop clinging to, to things of earth and to, to be in the kingdom of heaven. So uh, that is um, probably, well, it's my favorite poem, the whole of the Middle English corpus. And um, it's also a poem of, of exquisite um, theological insight. So um, if you haven't read it, I recommend it highly. <laughs> and uh, Tolkien has a, has a translation both of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and the Pearl. So if you're a Tolkien fan, those are good, good choices. Oh, last question. Principal question is about 
whether or not playing yeah. mass when uh, you're a young child, whether or not that's that's blasphemous. I mean, I, I, in my mind, I would just say like good or bad. Or like, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say no. I don't think it's blasphemous. Um, people imitate what they love, and as long as they're imitating, you know, respectfully, uh, you know, desiring to do as as the priest does at mass. Um, I, I don't see anything, you know, anything wrong with that. There, the desire is not to. Uh, it wouldn't be like, like um, the uh, uh, like a black mass where they're intending to to mock the ritual of the real mass, which is a real blasphemy. But they're they're intending to to. Imitate something which they've they've come to like, come to love, and in that sense, there's I think there's something good in that, um, and it's it's an, an innocent kind of imitation. It's not obviously they're not going to remember all of the different ritual detail or anything like that. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean the the interesting thing is like um, the video called it. I mean, it was like completely. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, there are some some parents that provide very yeah very intensely realistic yeah. <laughs> kinds so, of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 do, I do see the, the good intention, right? Like as you say, like trying to uh, make, maybe imitate something you love or even something you admire. Maybe. But I don't know. I, I just I mean personally, maybe I'm too scared to play with, with some rights. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, I again. I, I just see it as a as a kind of um, an imitation of respect. Trying to you know, like a uh, a young boy who who uh, makes a little uh, electric razor out of uh, out of Legos and you know attempts to be like dad and you know uh, shave in the morning while dad's shaving to see the little boy. It's the same. And he's doing it because he respects his father. He, he wants to be like his father, so yeah, that's that's what I what I would say. Okay, thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.